The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode eight of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are going to be covering Avengers number seven, their darkest hour. Ooh, ominous. So issue number seven comes to us in August of 1964. And it is written by Stan Lee, pencils by Jack Kirby, inks by Schick Stone, and letters by Art Simic. So kicking us off, I think this is so far my favorite cover. It's got just enough action, and the colors are just so vibrant. It just, it pops. It's got that shelf appeal, that eye appeal that makes you want to reach out, grab it, and hopefully buy it. And I think they accomplish their mission there. The villains are kind of doing some weird hand thing, but it's the 1960s. I'll cut them a break. Who knows what they're actually doing? So to start this issue, we find ourselves in a court of inquiry being held by the Avengers. It turns out in Tales of Suspense number 56, which the editor actually notes as Iron Man 56, but the title is still Tales of Suspense at this point. In Tales of Suspense 56, Iron Man refuses to come when the Avengers call. So what's actually happening is that Iron Man is having a crisis of conscience. And because of his damaged heart, he's thinking about giving up being a superhero. And he has, I mean, I guess Tony is close enough in age, or you could kind of call it a midlife crisis in his case. The Avengers are understandably displeased with Iron Man, so they're holding a hearing of their own in order to determine what his punishment should be. Before the Avengers render judgment, however... They give Iron Man a chance to speak for himself, and and he really admits that he has no defense, that he let personal problems, his crisis of faith, get in the way of his duties as an Avenger. And Cap kind of tries to comfort Iron Man and gives him a reassuring pat on the back and says, you know, we've promised not to pry into one another's business, but if you need help, man, just say so. And Iron Man is a little defensive and, and tells him, no, that there's nothing anyone else can do. This is my problem. I'll deal with it. At which point the Avengers basically jump into their verdict, which is that Iron Man will be suspended for a week. You know, I mean, all things considered, the punishment isn't particularly harsh. Everyone's response, I think, is a little on the harsh side. Yes, Iron Man failed to come to an Avengers call. At this point, though, they're all in their own books, and the Avengers are kind of a secondary priority for most of them, I think. Iron Man, probably most of all... I would call it a toss-up between Iron Man and and Ant-Man. I think the two of them have the most other stuff going on. Thor's other adventures don't seem to intrude too much upon the Avengers, although obviously everyone had, had a little bit of intrusion last issue. After Thor presents the verdict, we then immediately cut to a scene in Asgard where Thor's father, Odin, is doing something very similar for the Enchantress and the Executioner. So back in Journey into Mystery 103, Odin was looking for a way to dissuade Thor from falling in love with Jane Foster. So Loki suggests involving the beautiful Enchantress. When her charms initially fail on Thor, she then kind of contracts out her job to the Executioner and hires Executioner basically to go and kill Jane Foster. That way Enchantress can have Thor all to herself. 
Obviously, the plan failed, and Odin is now punishing Executioner and Enchantress for their crimes against Thor. And we get a, a really cool mirroring of panels between Thor and Odin. I would actually like it a little bit more if they were mirrored even tighter. They're close, but they're not quite the same. The camera angle, if it, as it were, is a little bit off, and kind of arm and hand placement's a little bit off. And there's some additional persons in the background of Odin's. I just think it'd be really, really cool if you had that even tighter mirroring. It'd be a nice effect. Instead of suspending Executioner and Enchantress for a week, like Iron Man got, they are instead banished from Asgard and forced to go to Midgar, or Earth. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, I'll be honest, because, well, that's where they were causing trouble in the first place. That's where Thor is, that's where Jane Foster is. It seems to me that they're just going to go cause more of the trouble you're already punishing them for. I mean, that's just me, but I'm not Odin. Maybe he knows something that I don't. While all this is going on, Loki's kind of in the background, thinking to himself how glad he is that Odin doesn't realize he's involved. And I have to wonder how Odin doesn't realize Loki's involved, because Loki was the one who suggested the Enchantress in the first place. This is early on in comics, so Loki doesn't have quite the same reputation for being a troublemaker and being untrustworthy as he will later on. But Loki wasn't at all subtle about suggesting the Enchantress. He straight up says, hey, let's use the Enchantress. So I don't quite understand how Odin missed that one. Of course, to wrap up our brief time on Asgard, we get a single panel of Enchantress and Executioner walking down the Rainbow Bridge away from Asgard. So I know it's this is not in the style of the Silver Age, but how cool would like a full page spread or even a double page spread of that particular panel be? I would really, really love to see something like that. It'd be really, really a great opportunity to, to show off a little bit on the art side. If you think of this as more of as a movie, either this happens off screen or you get a very dramatic scene where they're, you know, basically drummed out of Asgard, walking out in shame, these huge sweeping vistas kind of deal. And I think a page or two like that would be really awesome. Again, not as much in the Silver Age style. They don't tend to do full page spreads and certainly not a double page. But, you know, a man can dream. Being that the Bifrost is magic and doesn't really have to connect anywhere specifically, it drops off Enchantress and Executioner in the middle of a street in New York City. And immediately this starts disrupting traffic and the two are confronted by a police officer who Executioner starts trying to pick a fight with and Enchantress pretty quickly puts a stop to that. And as they're going down the street, Executioner's a big dude in a costume. And while this might be common nowadays, like during Comic-Con maybe... In 1960s New York, this kind of weird look is going to get you some stares, as it does, and Executioner addresses the crowd and refers to them as puny mortals. Oh my god, so much scenery chewing, it's glorious. I, I really am at a lack for words of just how much I love that level of just over-the-top villainy. Like, yeah, puny mortals is just such a cliched phrase, but it's so, so satisfying. It's one of the things you've got to love about the Silver Age. Nowadays, we get a lot of morally ambiguous villains and heroes and this and that. The villains in the Silver Age are really villains, and the heroes are really heroes. And you love both of them for being exactly who they are. 
Now, somewhere across town, we find Captain America getting some exercise with a whole bunch of professional wrestlers. And this appears to me to be one of the earliest intersections between comic books and professional wrestling, which is oddly a connection that I didn't realize how strong it was for a very long time. There isn't a whole lot of direct connection, I would say, but wrestling fans and comic book fans seem to have a lot of overlap, and it's kind of an interesting phenomenon I've noticed. And this is a page that certainly would appeal to fans of both. And Cap just really beats the tar out of the wrestlers. I mean, there's no getting around that one. Cap dominates these guys. By the end of the fight, Cap's like, all right, see you guys tomorrow. And they're like, "Mm, go to hell. No, not a chance. So Cap goes home. And as great as Cap is feeling at the end of his workout, about two panels later, Cap's feeling really bad because out comes Rick Jones in Bucky's old costume that he found lying in a closet. And again with Jack Kirby and Cap's facial expressions, the wild swing of emotion that Cap goes through in the course of four panels is just amazing. And it's four very distinct emotions. First off, Cap is looking at a book feeling really kind of, you know, kind of down and and nostalgic. The next panel, he's startled and kind of figuring out what's going on when Rick shows up. Panel number three is almost abject horror. And then panel four is barely controlled rage, which is a really interesting, although very, very well done look for Cap. In another character, they would just fly off the handle. Cap keeps it in check, but it's just barely under the surface there. And Cap goes off on Rick. Like I said last episode, I mean, Rick's still a teenager on the older, older age of teenager, but still a teenager. And he's trying to help and he's trying to be a part of the Avengers, especially after losing Hulk. But his timing and his choices of how he's going to help just are making situations worse. Cap goes from kind of nostalgic and a little kind of down to basically looking like he's going to have a complete breakdown by the end of the page. I also want to know where the hell Rick found this. Like, you said he found it in a closet. Bucky died, like, 20 years ago. So has this been sitting in a closet for 20 years? Is this part of, like, Cap's stuff that they, I guess, got out of storage? If you think someone's dead, you don't just put their stuff in storage for 20 years. You get rid of it. As I mentioned last episode, the Masters of Evil have a rotating roster of characters, and at this point, the only character that's free from last time is Baron Zemo, who Cap has once again sworn revenge against. And we catch up with Baron Zemo in his South American jungle kingdom, where he is attempting to collect more and more taxes from his people because he needs to get more weapons and troops and equipment to destroy the Avengers, especially after what happened to him last issue. The tear gas wasn't all that funny to him. You can't win them all. And while Zemo is counting his existing money, he is approached by projections of Enchantress and Executioner, and they want to join forces. Just before we cut to the Captain America wrestler scene, Enchantress and Executioner found a newspaper about the Masters of Evil and the fact that Zemo escaped, and they figure, since he was already trying to fight the Avengers, that they should team up. And Zemo can get his revenge on Captain America, and Enchantress and Executioner can get their revenge on Thor. It seems like a win-win situation for everyone, really. So, Zemo readily agrees. 
Once again, we have the Avengers going their separate ways, going off to work on personal or independent projects, and we see Cap and Rick walking through a park in New York when they are confronted by a man named Hans Gruberfeld. And I'm sorry, but my immediate response to Hans Gruberfeld is Hans Gruber from Die Hard. Now, I realize that this was written in 1964, and Die Hard was not going to come out until the 80s, but being a modern comics reader, all I can see is Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber as opposed to this particular character. Now, Hans Gruberfeld claims to be Baron Zemo's number two man, and he has come to Cap to atone for his sins and tell Cap where to find Zemo. Cap immediately jumps at this chance. Actually, first off, Cap just immediately jumps at Hans here, and Rick's got to hold him back, telling Cap that you can't fight him just because he used to be a Nazi, and I kind of want to say I think you can do that. I think that's legit. And Nazi fighting, maybe not. Nazi hunting is actually still a thing. Looking for Nazi war criminals and, and prosecuting them. And in fact, in the late 50s and early 60s, there were a number of high-profile cases. So that's probably where some of this came from. Hans provides the information to Cap, and Cap goes running off. At which point, Hans removes his face... And it turns out that it is a mask being worn by the Executioner. Now, two other things I want to talk about with Hans. First off is that Hans bears a very striking resemblance to Baron Wolfgang Strucker. Also from Marvel Comics and also a Captain America villain. Now, Strucker has yet to make his appearance in the current era of comics. And when I say that, I mean the comics set in the 1960s. Strucker has been a villain for Sergeant Nick Fury and his Howling Commandos, uh, specifically introduced in issue number five of that title, but he actually won't make an appearance in the current age of Marvel Comics for about another two years. But Hans bears a really, really striking resemblance. I mean, he's got the monocle and everything. It's At first I thought it actually was Strucker trying to disguise himself or hide himself, and it's not, it's Executioner, but it's an uncanny resemblance to say the least. The other thing, and this is just kind of how Jack did the art, when Executioner goes to remove the mask, he grabs the top of his head and his chin to kind of pull the mask apart, and there's something about the way it's drawn that is just it really unsettles me. I mean, it really looks like he's just straight up removed the head, but he's still talking. And I just, I don't know what to make of it, but it, it just weirds me out a little bit. It's really cool. It, it looks good. And I hope that's what Jack was going for on that one. But man, is it weird. Like I mentioned, the Avengers have all gone off to do solo stuff for a little while. And as Thor is returning to Donald Blake's office, presumably, he hears this call. Someone's calling his name. And he lands on this rooftop and he discovers the Enchantress, who immediately puts him under a spell and then gives him a sleeping draft, a sleeping potion. So essentially, Enchantress just roofied Thor. We'll call that an interesting narrative choice. But she does so, so that she can affect his mind and make him think that the Avengers are his enemy. And we get what is probably my favorite panel yet. It's a toss-up between this and the panel from issue four, where Cap is laying out before he wakes up. And it's hard to pick. It really is. But this panel, it's this amazing, twisted nightmare logic, and it's just incredible. Now, unfortunately, this is one of those panels where the coloring has gotten changed between editions. So if you look at the digital version on, like, Comixology, for example, it's in kind of these sickly pinks and purples. Whereas if you look at it in the Marvel Masterworks or in the Omnibus edition, the characters are more on color model. And I'll be honest, I think that actually is more terrifying. Because when you don't change the coloring, 
at that point, it's all about body language and facial expressions. Yes, Giant Man is crushing a building, and Wasp has evil bat demon wing things. But for the most part, the characters are, are almost unchanged, with the, again, with the exception of their body language and their facial expressions. Their hands are kind of clawed, and Cap and Giant Man are kind of hunched over. Iron Man's got this horrible facial expression... It's really, really cool. And I think, again, with the original colors, it's just enough of a distortion of reality that you can buy it. Right? That's what Enchantress is trying to do. She's taking Thor's reality and tweaking it just enough. There are those times where you see something and you go, "That's something's not right here. It's just too out of place. Something's off. I can't put my finger on it exactly, but this doesn't fit. And what Enchantress is doing is tweaking it just enough so that it still fits in reality and so that Thor doesn't try and fight it. So it's in his head and it still matches his expectations of reality. But it's super cool. It's one of my favorite two panels so far. I'd be really, really hard-pressed to pick between the two. Once Enchantress has finished weaving her magic spell, she wakes Thor up and sends him on his way. At which point we cut to Captain America dropping in on Baron Zemo's jungle kingdom. And we get a little bit of an unfortunate art bit here. And I actually noticed this earlier in the issue as well, where we can actually see one of Zemo's eyes. And as I talked about last episode, I really think Zemo's mask works best when you just see a rough outline of the eyes, nose, and mouth. For an effect, I think it's, that's much more interesting. Of course, because Zemo sent Executioner to go tell Cap where Zemo is hiding, he's ready for Cap. And so he starts off with a gas bomb, and then some of his natives attack Cap with machine guns, and things are going pretty well for Cap until he inadvertently falls into a hole, like a, a pit trap, which I was a little disappointed that we had a pit trap that wasn't full of punji sticks. I mean, again, Silver Age 1960s comics, so not really a, a kid-friendly thing, but I think this is another place you can get a really cool panel of Cap kind of, you know, using all four limbs to hold himself on, on the sides of the pit just above the, the stakes. That would have also been really cool. Also, at one point, Cap throws his shield at some of Zemo's henchmen and then has to run and pick it back up. And I just found myself going, wait, what happened to the Magnets Iron Man installed? Wasn't that their specific purpose is to help bring the shield right back to Cap? But don't worry, we'll come back to that in a minute. But first, we have Thor, except he's kind of evil Thor. He's bewitched Thor. And he has called Ant-Man and Wasp back to New York from their scientific endeavors. And Thor actually meets their helicopter in midair and just utterly destroys it. However, Giant Man realizes pretty quickly that something is up, and right before Thor smashes the helicopter, he yells out to Janet to shrink down and use her wings. And I really, really love that panel. I think it's a little bit too much text for what's going on, but I also think Giant Man's face in that is exactly the facial expression he should have. Like, that's a really spot-on Jack Kirby panel. I also appreciate that when Giant Man grows himself to very, very large proportions, that the comic is internally consistent in that growing to over 12 feet tall makes Giant Man really, really weak. It's something that was addressed in the first issue that we see Giant Man become Giant Man, and it's not spoken about again, at least not in Avengers. And then we get this page and this, these couple panels, and it's exactly consistent with the information that we've had before. So while this fight is going on, 
Iron Man sees what's happening on the television, and in spite of his suspension, he immediately suits up and goes to help, because he can't bear to leave his teammates in, a, in need like this. He could very easily justify staying back and not getting involved. I, I was suspended, you know, you guys told me I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to be involved. But instead, Iron Man gets up, suits up, honestly mans up, and goes. And he arrives, not quite in the nick of time, because... Wasp is doing a, a pretty significant job of distracting Thor from delivering a final blow to Giant Man, but certainly he shows up in time to provide some relief that is very much needed. You know, I'm, I'm realizing as I'm going through this issue again for uh, probably the fourth or fifth time here, we're really just kind of bouncing all over the place. You know, we're in the jungle, we're in New York. Now we're in a different part of New York. We are off with Executioner and Enchantress again. And I love this because Enchantress really reminds me of a 1960s movie star. You know, she's got that, her facial features kind of remind me a little bit of Liz Taylor. And she's kind of got the hair and the body for Jane Mansfield. And then you've got Executioner, who's sitting there in a blue sweatsuit. Neither of them are doing any of the fighting in New York. Enchantress takes this particular opportunity to look in on how the fight in South America is going via a good old-fashioned crystal ball. And what she sees concerns her. She sees Captain America stuck in a hole, but she and Executioner feel like Baron Zemo's going to screw this up. So Enchantress uses all of her powers that are left and reaches out and causes the hole that Cap's in to start collapsing on itself, thinking that she will just bury him alive and that will be that. Unfortunately, it has a somewhat opposite effect. Cap is actually now able to climb out of the hole on a bunch of the earth and rocks that have just fallen into the hole. And so where he was just a sitting target for whatever Zemo had in mind. Instead, now Cap is once again free, and man, does he wreak some havoc on Zemo and his minions. My personal favorite in this scene is the fact that he uses a palm tree, pulls back a palm tree, and just lets it fly. Very, very Looney Tunes style. You know, Saturday morning cartoons at their best. Basically, this is a Wile E. Coyote gag, except with Captain America. So given all the destruction that Cap is able to wreak on Zemo's minions and Zemo's kingdom, Zemo runs away, jumps into a plane, and flies off. Cap immediately says he's flying for the United States, attaches his shield to the magnets on his wrist, which I said we'd come back to that, so Cap does realize they're there, he just apparently didn't want to use them before, and Cap tags along for the flight. Now, I've got two issues with this. One, how does Cap know he's going to America? Like, the plane is literally just taking off. How does he know that's where Zemo is going? Secondly, and somewhat more importantly, I think, is Cap is attached by the arm to this plane. And while this is going on, as we'll see here in a minute, there's a fight between the Avengers going on in New York. And eventually Zemo's plane is going to show up at the end. So I want to know, how long is this fight? Right, we see Cap get on the plane... We then see Cap arrive towards the end of the fight, and we know that he's coming from the Amazon jungle. So I went and I did a little bit of math. And these are rough numbers here, so, you know, don't judge me too harshly. But ballpark for, you know, the middle of Brazil, which is kind of the heart of the Amazon, it's about 3,700 miles to New York City. So for comparison here, a commercial airliner goes about 575 miles an hour. That's kind of the high end of their range, their speed. At that speed, it would take almost six and a half hours to get to New York. It's a long time. All right, well, Zemo's got a better plane. So what if he's doing, what if he's doing the speed of sound? Mach 1, the whole time. I'll take almost five hours. All right, well, he's a supervillain. Let's say he goes faster than that. Let's say he goes double that speed. It would still take almost two and a half hours at Mach 2. Say, so, well, again, 
super scientist. He's got to go faster than that. So just for comparison, I went ahead and pulled this one out. The airspeed record, which is held by the the SR-71 Blackbird, is 2,193 miles an hour. At that rate, it would still take 1.7 hours for Zemo to reach New York. No matter how you cut this one, the Avengers are going at this for a really, really, really long time. And it only takes two pages. Zemo leaves in the first panel at the top of one page and has arrived in New York by the bottom of the next page. And as I mentioned, the Avengers are fighting through this whole ordeal. And it's really only by some quick thinking by Iron Man that the fight has even ended at all. Iron Man obviously realizes that something is wrong with Thor's mind. He thinks it's some kind of hypnosis, which is, you know, close enough for what we're doing. He decides to shine bright lights into Thor's face, and that should bring him out of it. And... This is another one of those times where I think we just kind of get a solution to a problem a little too abruptly. There's still certainly enough story space, I think, that we could have gotten something a little bit more involved. And instead, we just we get a real quick jump to a solution. It just seems a little too quick and a little too easy. So right about the time that Iron Man frees Thor from Enchantress's spell, Zemo shows up and starts taking strafing runs at the Avengers with his stun gun on his plane, only to be interrupted by Cap's shield smashing through the windshield of the plane. And this is a really fantastic page of comics. The colors are really great. I really enjoy the action. At no point am I particularly confused by what's going on, which is sometimes a problem in the Silver Age. You get a panel or two in the middle of action that doesn't quite mesh with the rest of what's going on. It's a page that just really works, and I enjoy it. It's nothing nothing overly special, I would say. We don't have any of those real standout panels or anything like that. This is just a solid page of comics, is what it is. And at the end of this page, Executioner grabs Captain America, preventing him from presumably killing Zemo, though, you know, obviously we'll never know. And then, quite honestly, he performs a Vulcan nerve pinch on Cap. Again, I realize this predates Star Trek, so this is just Executioner, you know, going for some kind of random unknown pressure point, but it's a it's a Vulcan nerve pinch, and it, it brings me great amounts of joy. Now that Cap has been dealt with, all of the Masters of Evil climb aboard Zemo's plane, they take off, and then Thor, using his hammer, creates a space warp and sends them off somewhere. And this might actually be my... No, this is my second favorite part of the issue. My first favorite is the Nightmare panel, but this is my second favorite panel of the book. Where Iron Man looks and he says, Thor, what did you do? Where is Zemo's ship going to end up? And Thor just looks and says... None can say a space warp can lead anywhere to a different city or a different universe. It's like, hey, Thor, what'd you, where are they going? He's like, I don't know. Could be anywhere. Could be Pittsburgh. Could be a different universe. It's just another example of Silver Age Thor giving no And, you know, from here, we've got three more panels. You know, we get a little bit of a wrap up. Thor is concerned now that Zemo has teamed up with Executioner and Enchantress. Cap wakes up and the issue ends, really. So overall, this is a much better Masters of Evil team than we had last issue. Zemo is certainly the heart of the supervillain team and absolutely its leader. But with the previous group of Masters of Evil, A, they were more like powerful henchmen and they really lacked 
kind of the gravitas to make me think of them as a major threat. Now, I realized, you know, last issue we had the, the listener question and I talked about the Masters of Evil being the bigger threat early on. And I think they are. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that in this issue, we add two very dangerous Asgardians to the mix. And I think Enchantress in particular is a great addition. You know, I complain a lot about the female heroes not getting to do a whole lot. The female villains, on the other hand, you know, the, the few that there are in the Silver Age, they tend to be able to do more. Now, obviously, it, they don't have a whole lot of physical prowess, right? We don't see Enchantress fighting, but she gets inside Thor's head and really messes him up. In general, she's probably less physically powerful than any of the other Masters of Evil that we've seen so far, but I think she is far, far more dangerous. And especially looking at it from a, a modern comics reader perspective, some of the most messed up stories in comic books and the ones that do the most damage to a hero are not the ones where they're beaten into a pulp. It's the ones where they are just crushed mentally and their soul really is just ripped out. And Enchantress is the kind of villain who can do that. I also really enjoyed the fact that this issue had a lot of character development. We've talked about this kind of at length, so I won't go too much into it, but obviously these are all characters that have their own books on the side. So you kind of expect that those books would get most of the character development because it's focused on that character and that Avengers may get little bits and pieces and whatnot, but nothing of major consequence, right? That's like the problem with Fantastic Four and the Johnny Storm in Strange Tales. Strange Tales doesn't ever matter because Johnny Storm's focus is the Fantastic Four. And to an extent, we get that with the Avengers, though nowhere near as bad. But in this issue, we get some really nice character development. Iron Man, first off, in the beginning of the issue, he owns his screw-up. He freely admits that he didn't do what he was supposed to do, and that he deserves the punishment that's coming. Now, I don't know if I want to call it character development. We do see more of a character trait of Tony wanting to fix things himself when he talks about, this is a problem that only I can deal with. Iron Man constantly is thinking he's the smartest man in the room, he can fix everything, he can solve the problem, and sometimes he needs help and doesn't realize it. So there's that, but again, I think at least him admitting he made the mistake and accepting the punishment for it. But then also later on in the issue, even though he's been suspended, he knows the team is in trouble and that suspension or not, he's got to help. He's got to step up and do it, especially because this is exactly what he was punished for. At this time, there was no Avengers alert for him to ignore. But the more fundamental point there is that he ignored an Avengers alert. He ignored a request for help. His friends needed him and he didn't come. So now his friends need him again, only this time without hesitating, drops what he's doing and suits up and goes to help. We also get some more time with Captain America and Caps is a little bit more difficult to deal with where, you know, Iron Man, he's got some flaws, but he also does some good things. Cap's struggling right now. And you look at Cap, especially like I talked about those four panels where you just get the wild swing of emotion. Things are really eating Cap up inside. And he's one of those people who can compartmentalize things really well. When it's time to be on duty and to fight, Cap is right there. Cap is ready to go, no matter what's going on inside. But when it's quiet and when he's alone, Cap is just mentally tearing himself to pieces and we see more and more of that the amount he is pining for the things that he's lost for Bucky and for the time period and the era that he missed we're really getting a chance to almost stare into Cap's soul a little bit and it's really interesting and and from a voyeuristic but a viewer's perspective it's really cool to see 
As far as art goes, I mean, I've got a hard time saying anything more of how awesome this issue is because it's got one of the two panels that is now tied for my favorite panel in Avengers so far. And there are a number of standout panels and I will be sharing those throughout the week once this episode airs because there's a, a large number of standout panels in this book. And I, I really think it's worth noting. You know, Jack Kirby is known for great art and I love the fact that this book is just continuously improving. You know, unfortunately, we have a short amount of time before Jack actually comes off the book. Jack will do issue number eight, and then we will see him again in a couple of episodes when we do X-Men number nine. But starting in issue number 10, Don Heck is actually going to take over art. And don't get me wrong, I'm looking forward to some of the Don Heck art because I like some of the, the changes he makes, but it's still not quite Jack Kirby. And as good as this book keeps getting, I can only imagine how good it would have gotten had Jack stayed on for another 20 or 30 issues. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions or comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we introduce yet another amazing Avengers foe with Kang the Conqueror. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. <laughs>